I'd like to interview you someday. I mean, I'm I'd, serious. I'd love to uh, have you for three or four hours and just ask you about... Uh, That's the moment. Um, I, I think they're all blown off now, so I think you're yeah. all right. Yeah. <laughs> but it is yeah. such a privilege to... to some of the people you... Uh, I, I, I thought the stuff you did on... Uh, on Nixon at the time you did that yeah. was just that, that was a breathtaking experience because he was he was prepared to give nothing that was then senator joe biden talking to my dad legendary television interviewer david frost in 1987 i'm wilfred frost and welcome to a special bonus episode of the frost tapes on this podcast, I've been taking a deep dive into my dad's archives to hear directly from some of the most iconic figures in American history. This season, we've been focusing on tapes from the late 60s and early 70s that have extraordinary relevance today. Our first episode was from the very first interview series my dad did in America. It was called The Next President, 1968. Mistakes were made. Uh, I prefer to look to the future. And as far as those mistakes are concerned, I won't try to, I'll try not to make as many. I think it's really sort of uh, involves the national purpose, almost the soul of the country. Dad talked to all of the key figures running for president in a series of long-form, intimate interviews. It launched his interview career in America, including the David Frost Show soon after, and the famous Nixon interviews in 1977. By the late 80s, as the Reagan years were winding down, he remade the series, The Next President 1988, and talked to the 12 key candidates, six Republicans and six Democrats, including Michael Dukakis, Bob Dole, Jesse Jackson, Al Gore, and George H.W. Bush. told your colleagues to go to college or whatever. You've done a lot of homework. Pardon? <laughs> You've done a lot of homework. <laughs> <laughs> it's my job, son. It's my job. <laughs> But there was one interview he did for that series that never made it to air, with then-Senator Joe Biden. It was Biden's very first campaign for president, and the youngest ever senator seemed poised to be a genuine contender. But a few weeks after Biden's interview with Dad, he would drop out of the race. Since the interview was not broadcast, the only copy that existed was the master tape, which was very nearly destroyed. When I took over running Dad's company after he died, we were paying bills for storage of his old tapes in London, New Jersey and LA. But about nine months later, I was contacted by a company in Cleveland who had many more of Dad's original master tapes that I was unaware of. They had many tapes, but crucially, the only copy of the Biden interview. Obviously, times have changed since 1987, but I found the intimacy of Dad's conversation to be extraordinary and timeless, I would argue. We've taken the best selections from their over two-hour conversation and edited them for length and clarity. So now I present to you, for the very first time, Frost Biden. Okay, then. Terrific. Let's go right back to the beginning now, if we could. Okay. You can still hear that. All right, it's just slightly disconcerting. If Okay. The, uh, so we can start. Senator, what would you say is the single most important personal quality that a president needs? I suspect character, uh, confidence in oneself, uh, a sense of who you are, and knowing your limitations and your strengths, uh, and being happy with yourself, mm. at happy. ease with yourself. At ease with yourself. And what's the most important part of the actual job, do you think? I think foreign policy is the most important part in the, in the job. Uh, 
a president who can be perceived by uh, uh, allies and adversaries alike as someone uh, who has strength and, uh, and some knowledge uh, about uh, uh, the affairs of the world, a degree of sophistication about world affairs. And how do you think you'd find it? I mean, was it Harry Truman said that he found the first few months in office a bit like riding a tiger. You better keep riding it or otherwise you get swallowed. How do you think the job would hit you? Well, I, you know, I'm not sure. I, the only comparison I can make is as a 29-year-old kid, I was elected to the United States Senate. Now, being a senator is nothing like being president, but maybe going into the Senate at age 29, never having held any major office, is a little bit like going from that to the presidency. I, I suspect it's uh, you're so busy. I suspect there's so much to do uh, just to get the transition underway and, uh, and, and accomplished that uh, I doubt whether you have much time to think about it. If you did have a lot of time to think about it, I imagine it would be somewhat of a daunting prospect. Right. And do you think the qualities you need now to get nominated or to get elected are just totally different from the ones you need to govern or not? No, I don't. I, I think they're the same. I think the American people and the Democrats and Republicans alike in choosing their nominees, I think they tend to choose the nominee who they perceive uh, all other things being equal, has the most strength and the, and the most the greatest strength of character, um, and uh, has a sense of can uh, can generate a sense of confidence not only about what he or she has to say, uh, but about the prospects that they can uh, uh, bring to fruition what they what their vision for this country is. Uh, I've always thought that the American people uh, use issues as a means by which they judge one's character less than how the person comes down on a particular issue. Right. But that it comes back in the end to character. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Mm. And, and when did you first realize that you could, hey, I could be president? Some say it was in the third <coughs> grade. Or was it later than that? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it re really is amazing to me. Uh, the further you go in public life, the more... Um, myth attaches to your childhood. I now, I now find out that I was not only a, a good athlete, I was a great athlete. I now find out I was not only a good trial lawyer, I never lost a jury case. I've recently learned that, um, that I really knew I wanted to be president from third grade on. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is that um, I never seriously contemplated or pictured Joe Biden sitting in the chair behind the desk in the Oval Office uh, until probably after the, after the last election, after the 84 election, after I had won my re-election to the United States Senate. And, uh, and I seriously started to contemplate whether or not I, uh, I should uh, and could run. And then you say, could I do it better? Yes, right? you do. And then you say, and that, that's, I, I don't want to sound uh, overly confident about it, but I, the degree of confidence I have about being able to uh, compete in that arena is strong. I, I feel very good about that prospect. Uh, and I feel a sense of confidence because I have 15 years of experience as a United States senator. I have been tested in ways that many people have. And I feel like I have a sense of where I am, a knowledge of what I want to do, a vision for what I want to see this country become. But the harder test, David, it's not the one, can I do it better than my opponent? or my prospective opponent. The harder test, when everybody goes to bed and you're sitting in this library by yourself and you ask yourself, now can I be the kind of president that I think America should have? Can I be the kind of president that Abraham Lincoln was? Can I be the kind of president Franklin Roosevelt was? Can I, can I, can I be a great president? And then you 
sit and think for a moment and beads of sweat pop out on your forehead, at least on mine, and you say, well, let me put that decision off to later. Let me, let me just focus on why I'm better than the other guy. <laughs> so there are two tests. The one's, the one's much harder than the other. How did your father and your mother influence you? Your mother always wanted you to read uh, three newspapers a day. Or yeah. I mean, who was the... Well, I, you know, they influenced me in both the same and different ways. Uh, my father has such incredible integrity. My dad uh, was a man who spoke of people with respect and treated people with respect. And uh, he, he has an expression he still uses to this day. He'll say to you, remember, you're a man of your word, and without your word, you're not a man, as if I were you know, Prince Philip or something, you know. They're the, they're the least judgmental people that I know. They have very high standards. But my father was one of those folks who always would say, well, walk in the other man's shoes before you make a judgment. For example, I remember walking down the street and a beggar walked up to us, to a panhandler, and asked for some money. My dad turned around, handed his wallet, took out a couple bucks and handed the guy. And he said, God bless you, sir, and walked on. I said, Daddy's only going to go buy, buy some liquor. He said, yeah, but that's all he has. And uh, I looked at my dad and I said, well, dad, I mean, don't you think you're encouraging that? He said, honey, that could be you. That could be me. That could be anybody we know. That's my dad. My mom is everybody's mother. To this day, the friends that I grew up with are 44 and 45 years old as I am. And my sister's friends down through my brother, who's 33, um, when they have a problem, they call my mom. If they have a problem with their marriage, they'll come see my mom. They'll have a problem with their son or daughter who's ill. They'll see my mom. They have a happy occasion. They'll call my mom. Um, we shared my mom a lot. <laughs> my mother's expressions were, remember, you're no better than anyone else, but no one is any better than you. You can do whatever you set your mind to do. I mean, that was a constant, total, complete refrain uh, in my mother's uh, house. Um, I, I look back and I was, my son is, I have two sons, one uh, 18 and one 17. And uh, one of them, I was saying, he said, Dad, you don't understand. Uh, so we were talking about a particular thing. And I said, well, try to explain it to me. And it dawned on me when he was explaining to me. I never once, my entire teenage life, ever thought my parents didn't understand. It's a standard I'd like to meet as a parent, and I haven't met. But my parents did. I just think my parents are better people than I am. Your battle with a stutter were they the crucial factors in helping you beat the stutter? I think or, so. Or were, was it school or what? I was home, um, but I was lucky in, that, uh, in the school that they sent me to. I went to a uh, Catholic boys' school in high school, and there were only 60 in my class. And I think because it was small enough, I was able to build my confidence. I'm not sure had I been in a school of 2,000, that I would have been able to get up on the stage and do the public speaking you had to do to be as part of the class. But I, I think it's important to put in perspective the degree of the stuttering. Again, I am now Demosthenes. Uh, you know, I, I learned that I, I, was the, I was the man who uh, put pebbles in his mouth and shouted above the waves. Oh, yes, and, yes, uh, yes. I stuttered in circumstances that would require me to be in front of a, a, a large group of people I didn't know or... If I had to read aloud, I had great difficulty reading aloud without stuttering. In the conversation, if you, as if I, as a, as a child, you came to visit our home, you probably would not observe that I stuttered. Mm -hmm. I had an uncle, Edward Finnegan, 
very bright man who stuttered very badly. I observed how limiting it was for him in his life and his aspirations and how, in a sense, it almost embittered him. And I was just determined that never was going to happen to me. I, but you didn't have to do breathing exercises or anything? Oh, I did, uh, but it, where they were breathing exercises that were I taught myself. For example, I used to, when I knew I had to do my, my speech at school uh, in the speech class, I would come home at night and I'd practice and I'd read Emerson. Um, and I would read his essay, The American Scholar, and I would practice saying, meek young men grow up in libraries, believing it their duty. I mean, and so I would practice to get the, to try to calm myself down, to get the breathing in place. When you went on to law school, why was it the biggest bore in the world? <laughs> I'm afraid people remember what I say these days. <laughs> and, and I don't, don't in any way mean to denigrate the importance and value of it. But I don't know anyone who would come home and pick up a law book and read it for pleasure. Yet much of what you did in undergraduate school or in graduate school and other subjects may be the very things now I pick up and read. I would go back and pick up and read Plato. I go back and pick up and read Somerset Maugham. I would go back and pick up and read a history book. I don't know anybody in the world who'd go and pick up and read a case book. People say that you get irked with detail and that in the Senate you've tended to avoid what is it, the grunt factor or the trench warfare in favor of either being interested in something and spectacularly starring in it or, or not at all. Well, in one sense that's true, but it's a difference, I think, be between going for the jugular and going for the capillary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we actually held hearings on whether or not during the energy crisis the staff sergeants who drove people from the Pentagon to the Hill to testify should be allowed to leave their cars running with the air conditioning on. Whether or not we're gonna require all government cars to be shut off and disengaged when not in motion so you don't waste energy. Now, quite frankly, David, I did not go to the United States Senate to sit eight or 10 hours in a hearing about an issue, even if you found the resolution would have no impact on the fate of the nation, zero. Conversely, in terms of mastering detail, I don't think anyone would suggest to you that I did not master as much detail about arms control as anyone else in the Congress, or as much detail about the complicated and cumbersome, almost thousand page criminal code, which I rewrote. I have had no reluctance, and I have uh, a relish in mastering the detail about issues that I think are of consequence. But I am not a technocrat. I do not believe the answers to governance lie in the uh, finding the right formula. I think uh, the answers in democracies usually lie in exciting the interest and imagination of a people to reach beyond what they otherwise think they could do. And I don't think that comes from a piece of legislation. We'll be right back with more from Frost Biden. Welcome back, and now more from my dad's conversation with then-Senator Joe Biden in 1987.
And then, of course, she went from the very heights of triumph, winning an election that no one thought she could win, to the very depths of despair with the road accident when you lost your wife, when your baby daughter and your two sons were injured. Joe Biden was first elected to the US Senate in November 1972, at the age of just 29. But just a month later, tragedy would strike. His wife, Nelia, and his year-old daughter, Naomi, were killed in a car accident just days before Christmas 1972. His two sons, Bo and Hunter, survived the crash. At that particular time, um, no one could have really had such a such a sudden turnaround in their lives. Was it the most character-forming moment of your life? I don't know. It was the most wrenching moment of my life. But I have a feeling, David, that my uh, character is awfully well-formed by my family uh, before that moment. Uh, I suspect uh, it was the formation of that character and my attitude about family and about life that made it possible for me to deal with it the way I dealt with it. But quite frankly, I think there's a lot of people who had this tough or tougher time than I have. The impact upon me, the sense of deprivation and anger and, and despair that I felt at the time would have been just as deep had I not been a United States Senator, had I been uh, I'm a salesman as my father was or a lawyer as I had been. So I think there again, there's a, there's a tendency um, because I was a public figure and because I had done uh, what most people at the time thought was the impossible, uh, it took on uh, the air of a Greek tragedy. What I often thought about then and think about now is um, I had so much support, not only from my family, but from a state who really rallied around me. I mean, it was incredible. I will, it sounds corny, but I would, if I left politics today and moved to Australia, I would never, ever, ever forget the debt I owe the people of Delaware. It's amazing how many good people there are. People would come up and leave cakes at my door with no note on them, with no anything on them, little prizes for my children. They'd write long, sympathetic notes to me. I don't mean just the day after. I mean for two, three years after. The support I had was tremendous. Had I been a struggling father with a wife and, uh, and three children and that had happened, and I didn't have a family, I can't imagine how hard it is. And so I used to even think then, as I do now, that if it was tough for me, just think how tough it is for the tens of thousands of people around the world to go through the same thing I went through, and worse. How long do you think it takes to recover from something like that? I think at a minimum, David, it takes um, one season of everything. Mm. You must go through uh, the first Christmas, the first birthday, the first movie, the first spring, the first autumn, the first snow, the first night alone in the same bed, uh, uh, the first uh, time you put the key in the door, the first time you get in the car and you smell that fragrance. Uh, I think it's getting by every one of those things once. First. First. Yeah. And once you've done that, I think then you are able to begin to recover. You never forget but I think that um, in time, it's hard to believe, but in time, the memory brings a uh, smile to your lips rather than a tear to your eye. It's, uh, mm -hmm. 
it's like a back pain. You, you learn to live with it and it doesn't become oppressive. You learn to adjust to it. You don't bend over the same way you used to bend over. Yeah. yeah. And how, as a Catholic, as a Christian, as a believer, um, did you sort out God's role or non-role in all of this? And whether it was God's will or not? Or... Well, I'd, I'm not sure. I'd like to talk about that, but uh, it's awfully personal. But let me just say that... Um, I had uh, the gravest doubts for about uh, a year. In my case, uh, my faith was sorely tested. A better man, a man with more faith, maybe wouldn't have. And I thought I had a lot of faith. But it came back, and it came back, uh, and it, it blossomed. Uh, but there was a period where I, uh, I could not fathom that there could be a God, and that could happen. Was there one event that brought, brought back the faith or just? There wasn't an event. There was a, a constant occurrence, and that was looking in the, the eyes of my sons who had survived and thinking of the strength of uh, the woman that I had lost. I mean, I know used to always think, what would she do? But really, what really changed my life, truly changed, it was my Jill, my wife. She changed my life. She allowed me to dream again. I mean, you know, up to that point, it was um, getting it done, getting my job done, whether the job was bringing home money to put food on the table or passing legislation or whatever. There was no, there was no sense of joy to my life. And she brought that all back. Dad later sat down with both Joe and Jill to talk about how they'd met. Tell me, how did the two of you both meet? It's a rather romantic story, isn't it? Well, <laughs> uh, Joe saw my picture. I guess I had uh, done, as a favor for a friend, uh, Newcastle County Parks and Recreation. I was in one of the pictures for their display. It was at the airport. And Joe came into the airport and I guess was looking at the picture and his brother said, well, I think you've met her once and why don't you ask her out? And Joe said... Almost a little bit, a little bit <laughs> And the, um, my brothers and sister were all going out together for dinner. And they said, why don't you come with us? And I said, well, I don't feel like calling anyone. And my youngest brother said, remember the girl you saw at the Wilmington Airport on that promotional brochure for the Department of Parks? And I said, yeah. He said, remember you thought she was nice? He, I said, yeah. He said, she's a classmate of mine. Why don't I call her? And uh, that's how it happened. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history. The rest mm -hmm. is history. Was it love at first sight that night or what? For me it was. For her it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, by the way. You talk about campaigns, David. This was the hardest campaign I ever had to convince her uh, to feel about me the way mm. I felt about her. And so how long was it between that, uh, that preposterous request and, and, uh, and when you got married? Two years. Two years. Uh -huh. I had dinner here almost every night with the boys uh, while I was teaching. So it was a very natural thing that evolved. Mm. Actually, it was their idea that we get married. Really? <laughs> they were the first ones to suggest it. I mean, they said to Joe, you know, isn't it about time that we married the Jill? And uh, so... That's a true story. We married yeah. Jill. That's wonderful. Yeah. The boys, when they were little, they used to come into the... There's a big old bathroom in this giant old house, like a gymnasium, and I'd be in there shaving. They'd come in and talk with me. I was shaving one morning, and uh, Bo turned to Hunter and said, Hunt, you tell him. And Hunter, number two son, said, Daddy, we were talking. We think we should marry Jill. 
Um, that's honest to God truth. And, that's um, a great quote. And so, <laughs> so that's what happened. <laughs> I would have asked her anyway, I suspect. But <laughs> <laughs> Did you do the traditional thing? Did you go down on one knee? Or? No, just about. I went up and asked for her father's permission. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, uh, it was a slightly untraditional wedding uh, in the sense that uh, we, were, we did not want to be married in Delaware um, because we didn't want a lot of publicity about it. So we went up to uh, a friend of my sister's who was a Jesuit priest, mm-hmm. married us, uh, rented the UN chapel. And it was a very closed wedding. Why don't you tell them about it? It was about so I, the kids. So I married three boys, or the three boys. Right. And uh, the boys, you know, we were all at the wedding, and I, uh, they were the first to kiss the bride. When Father said, you can now kiss the bride, truly, spontaneously, both our sons stepped up as if they were uh-huh. to kiss Jill, and they mm-hmm. kissed her first. And then, that sounds corny, but it's true. No, no, no this mm-hmm. is, it sounds great. How old were they then? Uh, Seven and eight. Uh To keep this corniness going, maybe we should tell you, we, uh, our wedding anniversary from that point on, uh, we all four spend it together. We all go to, all four of us go to dinner. Um, It's, uh, Uh it's been good. It's been really, uh, God, Uh knock on wood, it's been good. That is the happy ending. I mean, you spoke about how incredibly happy your first marriage was, but it really is. It truly, it, it truly is. Most to, people to don't get a again. chance. I couldn't agree with you more. With me, I, uh, um, I never gave up. I give up for periods, but I was just absolutely convinced. Although at times, if you spoke to me, I would have said it would never happen. That you just that you make things happen. That fate can change things without anything you can do. I mean, no, nothing you can do to affect it. But you can make things happen. You can't control everything, but you can make things happen. And, um, and it was that sort of uh, um, unyielding faith that never left, the center that never moved that I got from my parents that I think people have to be ready for love. I think they have to, be, they have to want it. My mom has an expression about you have to work at love. Love, you have to work at every day. Yeah. Um, yeah, once you begin to take it for granted, once you begin to think, well, this established, we're not going to, um, that's when you start to get yourself in trouble. And uh, whether it's uh, between, uh, you know, uh, father and son or husband and wife or, you know, whatever, I just think you have to work at it. We'll be right back with more from Frost Biden. Welcome back, and now more from my dad's conversation with then-Senator Joe Biden in 1987. Your sister had said that some people might have voted against you because of your personality, because not everyone loves you, some love you and some hate you, and you're a love-me-hate-me sort of chap, you're not an in-between and so on. Did that work for you or against you in that election, do you think? The impression is just that, that I'm a love-or-hate candidate. But um, strangely enough, um, I was able to generate a lot of support across party lines. And Senator Boggs and I ran a campaign where neither one of us ever once said a negative thing about the other person. I have a tendency to make the far right very shaky. And they seem to have a visceral response uh, to me. Uh, and, and a substantive one, too. I don't mean to suggest that it's not substantive. 
But beyond that, uh, it hasn't been nearly this love-hate, that chemistry that others think. At least I haven't observed it. So in retrospect, you would think that you, you don't divide people's opinions that much. No, right? I, think people, I think people tend to draw fairly rapid conclusions about me. People tend to um, uh, draw a conclusion about their feeling toward me sooner than later. I don't know that many people who love me uh, in the sense that this is the greatest thing since, since a shortcake. And uh, I don't know uh, um, that many people who say, oh, I really hate this fellow. There was an interview um, given by a, um, a very long interview with a major American newspaper where they interviewed a, um, uh, a, a group interested in civil rights and asked them about Biden. And they said, well, we like Biden very much, except uh, we wish he really worked at it all the time. Because when he takes up our cause, he does it stunningly, or whatever the phrase they used was. And we'd rather him than anyone in America do it for us. But he doesn't always pick up our cause. And it dawned on me. One of the things they haven't figured out is they don't take my word for it is when I don't pick up their cause is because I don't agree with them. Because I don't fit into the nice, neat mold of a definition of what a liberal is or what a conservative is. I'm a man who thinks, for example, that there should be a limited line item veto for presidents. Well, that flunk, I flunked the litmus test for liberals. I mean, my Lord, that's a bad thing. Um, but yet, because I might take up the fight um, on a matter of providing for health insurance or a matter of providing for educational funding for uh, Head Start programs, the same people who would then turn to me and say, now take up the fight against the line item veto. And so well, I disagree with you. I think they think I'm being political when I disagree. We've talked about a lot of the things people say about you in the course of this conversation. One word that uh, we uh, haven't mentioned, which is, crops up all the while, is when people talk about Joe Biden's charm. Now, has that charm ever got you into trouble? <laughs> I don't know that I have that charm. I wish I did. I hope I have it. Uh, um, but I think, again, it's one of those exaggerated, just as my faults are exaggerated, my qualities, assuming charm would be a quality, um, are, is exaggerated. Um, um, I've gotten in trouble a lot of times, David, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and, uh, but I, I cannot suggest whether or not it's because I have been charming or not. Would you agree with the summing up of somebody who's saying you're not a man of shadings, you're either invisible or the star of the show? I wouldn't agree with that, but, uh, but again, that's good theater. No, I, uh, I've always been a participant, David. Um, from the time I've been a kid, uh, back when I was um, playing sports, I was the star. Then I was sick with asthma and I couldn't play for a while, so I was the team manager. I was the guy that cleaned the cleats voluntarily. I was the guy who, uh, who got the towels and brought them into the locker room. I just wanted to be part of it. And whether or not I was the, the cleat boy cleaning the cleats of the varsity, or whether I was uh, prior and after the star scoring the touchdowns, uh, it didn't matter much to me. When Dad interviewed Joe Biden in 87, the big story in the headlines was Gary Hart. At the time, Hart had been the presumptive frontrunner, but news of a possible extramarital affair had torpedoed Hart's candidacy. <laughs> Do you actually think that Gary Hart's alleged activities 
should be any disqualification for becoming president? I don't think there is any qualification or disqualification in a democracy. I think the American people make a judgment. Um, uh, and uh, ultimately, I think that uh, there is no absolute test uh, that one passes or doesn't pass. We have elected uh, scoundrels in America because the people have said, well, at least there are scoundrels. I think people hold you to a test. I think they measure your character in direct proportion to whether or not you turn out to be what you advertise yourself to be. Consequently, I think that uh, when one says, um, I am a, uh, a monogamous, um, happily married man and follow me to prove it, and then flunks the test they set for themselves, it goes less to whether or not they would elect a woman or a man of the presidency who has committed adultery or allegedly committed adultery than it does to whether or not the person is what they're advertising themselves to be. On domestic issues, one of the most contentious and doubted is the subject of, of abortion. Um, yeah. Where exactly do you draw the line on that? There's a real important distinction to make, at least I believe to make, between uh, President Biden and Joe Biden. As Joe Biden, a uh, practicing Catholic, uh, I subscribe to the church's view on abortion as it affects and as it would be dealt with by me personally, my wife and my family and my children. But as president, it seems to me I have no right to impose my views on that issue on a body politic at large, made up of equally as devout, equally as religious, equally as God-fearing people who have a fundamentally different view on the issue than me. So I make a distinction. And I think you have to be able to make a distinction. When the people of the United States elect me as president, if they do, they're electing a man to be president who will not attempt to impose his religious views and values upon the nation as a whole, although he may very well hold them deeply and feel them deeply as I do. And in terms of the words of 25 years ago, in terms of foreign policy, where John F. Kennedy could say that we would pay any price and bear any burden where liberty was threatened or whatever, then came Vietnam and other issues. That's not possible anymore, is it? I would, I would alter those words. I would say the issue is pay the right price and bear the right burden, not any price and any burden. Um, it is possible for the United States to be the, continue to be in the forefront of world leadership and be the world leader, um, the leader of the free world, and effectively so. Um, but it is not a role that's indiscriminate. It is not a role that has no bounds at all. We're still able to meet the, the, the challenges and requirements. But I think it requires us to be a little smarter, uh, a little tougher, uh, and, uh, and maybe just have a little more wisdom than we had before. Can any Democratic candidate deal with this budget deficit without increasing taxes? I don't think any candidate, Democrat or otherwise, can deal with the budget deficit by saying, under no circumstances can there be taxes. I think that a president has to look and should never forswear in the next eight years there'd be no circumstances where they don't need new revenues. But quite frankly, David, more important than new revenues, more important than budget cuts, is us dealing with the macroeconomic problems. 
third world debt, the trade deficit, they impact more upon our ability to get our economy underway than any $5 billion tax increase or $10 billion um, spending decrease. As the interview started to wrap up, I was struck by how many comparable phrases then Senator Biden used at the end of the Reagan years as he is today after four years of a different Republican president. There was a time when the slogan was that what the American people needed was a chicken in every pot or then maybe a car in every garage or a home for every family. Uh, What do they need now? A re-established sense of community a sense of uh, shared obligations and aspirations, uh, a solid dose of idealism mixed with their newfound realism, um, a sense of uh, that kind of optimism we've had before that has always been the past, been mingled with a sense of commitment to one another. This president, the thing that I disagree with him most about is the way he has divided this nation in terms of making it legitimate from one section of the country to say, let's just worry about us and not the rest. When he stood up several years ago in a joint session and said, I'm paraphrasing, why should the woman in Albuquerque, New Mexico, pay to subsidize mass transportation in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as if she had no obligation? He missed the point. The woman in Albuquerque, New Mexico, would have no water to drink were it not for the taxpayer in Philadelphia. And the taxpayer in Philadelphia would not be able to ride that mass transit system were it not for the hog farmer in Iowa. We are one big nation. And this president, I think, has spent too much time appealing to our individual interest and our sectional interest and not talking about the whole. Sectional. Sectional. Yes. I'm sorry. I I just said sectional. No, no, no. (laughs) Sectional interest. (laughs) And I think to reestablish a a sense of community and view things again in terms of the way our parents viewed them. The journey, and I realize to uh, to an Englishman this may sound uh, typical bravado for an American. I think the journey of the history of this country of ours has been that each generation has viewed its obligation as leaving a country that was a little better off than the one they inherited And I think that we're at risk of not doing that for the first time in a long time. And so I think we have to view all of what we do through the prism of how it impacts upon our children. And it's not a soft-hearted liberalism. It's a a basic pragmatism about uh, what we've always been. Well, Eugene O'Neill said once to me about we talk about the American dream and we like to talk about it and we want to talk about it. But what is that dream in most cases now, I guess he would have said but the dream of material things. Is that the danger? Well, it is a danger, but there's nothing wrong with that dream of bettering yourself materially as long as you don't see that as the exclusive responsibility you have. Most of our forebearers came to this country uh, for that reason. We talk about religious freedom. We talk about wanting to breathe air that's free. All of that's true, but they also, when they came up the, uh, the Hudson River and looked at that statue and said, aha, I'm going to make some money. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Democrats in the past, in the recent past, have made people feel in some cases like they should wear a hair shirt if they succeeded. 
That's not right. But it is also not right, the Republican uh, appeal, which is basically, we'll put you in a silk suit and don't worry about anybody else. Uh, there's a happy medium there. It's, you and I were talking earlier about um, the British election. Someone sent me the, uh, the Kennick 10-minute commercial from your, your latest campaign. And I watched your labor candidate. And he stood there and he said, why am I the first Kennick in a thousand generations to go to the university? And he turned to his wife and he said, why is my wife the first in a thousand generations? He said, it's because our forefathers were thick. He said, these same people who, who taught us poetry and read poetry and taught us verse and taught us to dream, or was it they weren't tough? He said, these same people who worked in the Welsh mines and then came up after eight hours and played football for three hours? He said, no, it wasn't because they weren't tough and it wasn't because they weren't smart. It's because they had no platform upon which to stand. That's what this nation has to do, to build a platform upon which people can stand, not to be guaranteed anything other than an opportunity. But we all have to build that platform. I am not the first in my generation to go to school, to college and to graduate school, because I'm smarter than my father, because I had a greater opportunity than my father. This country provided a platform. And I really think what's at stake here is building a platform for our children one upon which they can stand to realize their dreams. And in addition to building it, once you've built it, the role of a president then, it seems to me, beyond presiding over government, is to lead a society to realize what its potential is. And, and I think, David, there's a whole generation of Americans that are waiting for their chance. It's not, again, some uh, misplaced romanticism. It's basically they think it's their turn to have their chance to make a mark in history. And they don't view us as the twilight of our, of, of our empire. They view this as an opportunity for the United States to surge ahead again in terms of making the world better. I, I sounds, maybe, maybe I'm being a little, you think I'm a little too romantic about it, but I don't think so. I think it's, it, I truly think it's been, it's really the, the journey of this country. That's what it's always been. JFK once said, life is unfair. Do you think that's still true? Life is unfair, life is unpredictable, but the role of a compassionate government, in my view, is to provide as much opportunity to level out, if you will, the bumps for people that are created through no fault of their own. And uh, not to guarantee anything, but to give them a chance. Um, obviously, uh, certain parts of it are, that are unfair. Um, but that doesn't mean government should sit back and say, well, because it's unfair, I'm not going to pay attention to that fact that that child was born into poverty. That's unfair. Through no fault of child's own, born into poverty. But it seems to me government has a right uh, responsibility to say, now, what are we going to do to help that? What are we going to do to make that work without some blind notion that the only way to do it is to defy the uh, deprive people of their individual initiative and individual rights. I have a friend who says it's great when conscience and convenience cross paths in politics. <laughs> I think that both conscience and convenience dictates that it makes good sense to help that child from a moral standpoint, and it also makes economic good sense to help that child. And we have to sell it both ways. And if you weren't uh, a senator, if you weren't 
running for president, what would you hope to be doing? If I had your talent, your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just change chairs. <laughs> I, I don't think I can handle it. <laughs> I, I, uh, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up on the Frost Tapes, a deep dive into American history with the people who made it. It was a year of turbulence in American society. American fascism is on its way, and the police state is rapidly upon us. The greatest concentration of power in the United States today is not in the White House. It's in the media, and it's too much. These interviews have been edited for length and clarity. The Frost Tapes is a production of iHeartRadio and Paradigm Productions. Executive producers of The Frost Tapes are Wilfred and George Frost. Executive producer for iHeartMedia is Mangesh Hatikada. Produced by Ryan Murdoch and Nikki Etor. Written by Lucas Riley, Ryan Murdoch and Wilfred Frost. Directed and edited by Ryan Murdoch with help from Abu Safar and Michelle Lands. Fact-checked by Austin Thompson. Special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Ears Productions and Morgan Lavoy of iHeartMedia. Special thanks also to John Florescu, producer of The Next President with David Frost, 1988, and Jerry Patton, founder, Classic Strategic Media, Ohio. 